invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Job. Let me tell you a story as told by a father. Our son Aaron had just passed his third birthday when our daughter Ariel was born. Aaron was a bright and happy child who before the age of two could identify a dozen different varieties of dinosaur and could patiently explain to an adult that dinosaurs were extinct. My wife and I had been concerned about his health from the time he stopped gaining weight at the age of eight months and from the time his hair started falling out after he turned one year old. Prominent doctors had seen him and attached complicated names to his condition, but had assured us that he would grow to be a very happy, but otherwise short, but normal in all other ways. Uh, Later on, we learned that our son's condition was something called progeria, or rapid aging. He went on to say that Aaron would never grow much beyond three feet in height, he would have no hair on his head or body, he would look like a little old man while he was still yet a child, and he would die in his early teens. How does one handle news like this? I was a young, experienced rabbi, and what I mostly felt that day was a deep, aching sense of unfairness. It didn't make sense. I had been a good person. I had tried to do what was right in the sight of God. And more than that, I was living a more religiously committed life than most people I knew. People who had large, healthy families. I believed that I was following in God's ways and doing His work. How could this be happening to my family? If God existed, and if He was minimally fair, let alone loving and forgiving, How could he do this to me? And that, of course, is a man named Rabbi Harold Kushner who went on to write the best-selling book, Why Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And uh, as you may know, uh, the the book is a little bit older now, but uh, in it, the author wrestles with the book of Job, particularly in the scriptures. And uh, I don't think he got the message right, but I think the questions that Rabbi Kushner asks are really good questions, aren't they? Why do bad things happen to good people? Or I think Warren Wiersbe's title was even a bit better, Why Do Bad Things Happen to God's People? Well, the book of Job exists in part in the canon of Scripture to help us wrestle with these questions that arise in the midst of suffering and affliction, in the midst of circumstances that don't seem to be fair. And in fact, when life seems to contradict what we know the Bible teaches about the character of God, what do we do? What do you do? These are great questions to consider. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, This book addresses what theologians call theodicy or the problem of evil. How do we explain evil if God is good? Why do we worship? Why should we worship? And, And I would suggest to you that we need to understand the book of Job because we are broken people living in the midst of a very broken world. So I want to introduce you to the book of Job today. I just finished teaching a series on the book of Job. Our pastor was on sabbatical, so I had an extended time. I, I wish I could just go all afternoon uh, to explain. The, the, this is the most compelling book 
And like a lot of books in Scripture, I think because it's difficult to understand, we sort of gloss over it in our Bible reading plan. I mean, you don't need to admit if you do this, but the first couple chapters are not too bad, right? Kind of understand what's going on. Then you get to that middle section, and you're like, who's talking to who? And it's poetry, and it's old, and it's like, okay, and you just kind of, you just kind of flip ahead in your Bible reading plan. You get to the end where God shows up, and you have more good stuff. And the reality is what happens in that dialogue section, in the middle section of the book, is a key to understanding the whole thing. So maybe some other time we can, we can look at the book of Job and all its length. But I just want to I, I introduce you and, and encourage you to get to know this book. Uh, years and years ago when I taught through this book verse by verse, it changed my life forever. And I would love to share that with you. So if you're in Job, uh, look at chapter 1. And uh, like I said, we're just going to get uh, into the first chapter and a half or so today, but uh, there, are, there are such wonderful things for us to appreciate here. So the first thing we need to do is meet Job, okay? So let's meet Job together. Follow along as I read, starting in chapter 1, uh, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And uh, you can't see it in the English, but right out of the gate, the narrator starts off the book putting the spotlight on Job. The the text starts with the man. And uh, and actually, the the way that that, uh, the Holy Spirit brought this book together, it's almost like going to a play where you have the curtains opening up, act one, and and there we have, the curtains go back, and now we see the spotlight coming down on the man, uh, Mr. Job. And the text tells us here he was from the land of Uz. That's in northern Saudi Arabia today, if you're curious about that. And the narrator goes on to tell us that this man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Uh, he was above reproach. He was a man of integrity. Uh, th- those, those terms refer to the reality that he was a believer in the Lord, a believer or follower of God. The text goes on to tell us he had seven sons and three daughters that were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man, there's, you know, there's the spotlight still on him, that man was the greatest of all the men of the East in terms of his wealth, in terms of his family, in terms of his reputation in the community, in terms of his integrity as a a man of faith, a man who walked with God. This was the greatest of his generation in this day. He was greatly blessed with both family and possessions. If you do the math, he's he's got over 10,000 animals, and verse 4 tells us that he, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when those days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt, burnt, sacri- burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my son have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And the, the narrator tells us there, thus Job did those things continually. Uh, We see here, we we get to kind of get into the bedroom of Job here. We get a a window into his personal life. Uh, He wasn't just a man of faith in the public sphere. He was a man of faith in private too. He would intercede, as the text tells us here, for his children. Of course, uh, this time that's happening, this is before the time of Moses. This is before the time of the law and the sacrificial system. Uh, Job was likely a Gentile anyway. And uh, so we're, we're thinking about Job as living probably back in the patriarch period. 
So he would have been a contemporary of guys like Abraham and Isaac, but lived in a, in a different area of the Middle East there. But, but we see here his faith on display. We see his concern for his family. We see him acting, as it were, as the family priest, uh, intervening, praying, interceding for his children. He was righteous. And, and given the fact that he had 10 grown children, uh, we, we can think of Job as probably being in his 60s or 70s. Uh, perhaps he's older than that, but, he, but he's at least probably in his 60s at this point. Okay? And then there's this then there's this scene change. The curtains close, they open back up, and we are astounded at what's changed. The, the camera has panned from the earth to the heavenly places, and we get a window. The, the, there, what we're about to read here is unmatched in the canon of Scripture. We get to see something that happens that we don't get to see in any other place in the Bible. The camera pans to the heavenly places, and we see this verse, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Uh, it's like, the, it's like the, the curtain is pulled back here, and we get to see uh, a cosmic exchange between God and the angels. Uh, we, we know that that term, sons of God, refers to angels, because elsewhere in the book of Job, uh, that's clarified for us. But notice also who comes to present themselves with the angels to God. Uh, who comes with them? Uh, does your Bible say Satan? Is that what it says? You know, and we're, I think we're all blessed with sitting under good teaching in our churches that we have pretty good theology about Satan. So, so we tend to think of Satan as a personal name, a proper noun, if you will. But that's actually not what the word Satan means. Hebrew hasatan, it's just borrowed from the Hebrew word that's used here. It's actually a title more than it is a name. And the word Satan or Satan means the adversary. So the way we might read this is, there was a day when the sons of God, the angels came to present themselves before God, and the adversary came with them. Now, that immediately raises a lot of theological questions, doesn't it, right? What on earth is Satan doing in the presence of God? Can he even be in the presence of God? How did he get there? I thought he was, right? And and what's interesting is, we we just have to have some uh, hermeneutical self-control here, because... um, the author is not interested in answering all of those questions. We, we know, of course, elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we learn about the background of Satan as a fallen angel and his judgment and whatnot. But for now, we're just supposed to stand intrigued as this story unfolds. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to the adversary, from where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming around on the earth and walking around on it. Now that sounds a lot like uh, what Peter says, right? In 1 Peter chapter 5, that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we see some, some continuity there in what we know in the New Testament. And then God asks the adversary this question. Look at verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? Uh, the, the, the way this comes out in the original is really interesting. He literally says, have you set your heart on him? It, it's, a, it's a Hebrew way of saying, have you noticed him? Have you, have you paid attention to, to this man, Job? God says, there is no one like him on the earth, a, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, now notice, who takes the initiative here? 
God does, doesn't he? God puts the spotlight on Job in the eyes of the adversary. Very interesting. And Satan, the adversary, says to the Lord this question. Does Job fear God for nothing? And if you like to underline, highlight, circle stuff in your Bible, you need to do that right here with this question. Because that question that Satan asks God sets up the whole book. In fact, this is not a question. This is actually an accusation. You say, how does that work? Well, let me explain this as the text goes. But I want you to see, now that we've kind of introduced Job, what we might call recognizing Satan's charge as an interpretive key of the book. Okay, So we recognize Satan's charge as an interpretive key of the book. Okay, Now let's let the adversary explain his question. Verse 10. Have you not made, God talking, or Satan talking to God, have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely, the, the text there is emphatic, he will surely curse you to your face. There's the charge. Satan says to God, well, of course Job worships you. Of course he's your main example of what it means to be his servant. Just look at how great you've made his life. He's got kids. He's got um, wonderful possessions. He's got animals, which would have represented his livelihood. We would say he was very well-to-do. He's got a great, great reputation in the community. What else would you want? Of course he worships you. But here's the charge. God, if you were to take all those things away, he would curse you to your face. You see that? It's not a question, it's an accusation. Satan's charge is essentially that God must buy worship from people. He's going to buy worshipers by making their life so good. Satan can't imagine a world where people love God because of who he is, not because of all the blessings that he brings. And that's his accusation. That's his question. Now, now, why would God bring this up? God takes the initiative, right? God puts the spotlight on Satan. Satan makes this accusatory question, does Job fear you for no reason, accusing God of essentially buying worshipers. Why would God do that? Can I give you a help on that? It's a setup. It's a setup. God is going to thwart the blasphemous accusation of the adversary in the presence of the whole heavenly host and he's going to use Job to do that. It's a setup. That's what he's going to do. God is going to show his worth and his value and his glory and his majesty by thwarting the accusation, the blasphemous charge of the adversary. And the rest of the book is Satan's effort to prove his case and his charge. But you got, you got to see that because that question is what infiltrates the rest of the story. Now look what happens here. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. And I want you to notice 
that every ounce of power given to the adversary flows from the permissive hand of God himself. Do you see that? God, only God is totally sovereign. The Bible does not paint a picture of God and Satan like a boxing match. Now in this quarter, we have the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the lord of lords, God, right? And in this corner, we have the adversary, the devil, the god of this world. That, that's not it at all. Only God is sovereign over everything there is. This is not, this is not uh, uh, two equal powers, a good power and an evil power, duking it out cosmically. This is not, can I tell you, this is not Star Wars. This is not the force where you have a light side and a dark side. No, no, no. This is the God of Scripture who alone is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent and the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This universe is God's universe and he runs it by his own sovereign power. Listen, the choke chain leash of Satan only extends as far as his master allows. As the reformer Martin Luther uh, once said, even the devil is God's devil. We see that here. So God permits And then tragedy hits. Look back at the text. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And, and while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the, the fire of God, uh, probably referring to a, a lightning storm, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans, so, so the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans are, are both kind of a group of nomadic pirates, bad guys of this day. So the Chaldeans come in, they, they formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. So, so you can see this, right? Job is sitting there probably in his home. Servant number one comes in and says, we lost all the animals. Comes in again, we lost all the servants. And, and servants are piling in, coming in. Verse 18. And while he was still speaking, another also came up and said, your sons... And your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and it struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. In one day, he loses everything. He loses his financial well-being. He loses his livelihood. He loses most of his servants. And he loses his ten precious children. Any parents have kids here today? Can you imagine getting a phone call saying, I'm so sorry to tell you, all your children are dead. Any grandparents here? You get a call, I'm so sorry to tell you, your grandchildren were just in a tragic accident and they've all died. 
a horrific, horribly, unspeakably difficult day. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Here we see this man's faith and trust in God in the most difficult day of his life. That's what a man of faith does in trials, isn't it? He worships. He turns to God in his grief. Satan's not done. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and and Satan also came with them to present himself. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming around on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said again to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan responds to the Lord and says, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, here's the charge again, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord says, okay. Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. It's interesting, as you read through the book of Job, you will get uh, little descriptions of what was going on here. Job had some sort of uh, skin disease over his whole body. Those uh, uh, conditions, it became infected, uh, there's one point in the text where it says his body actually became black. His face began to swell so that his eyes were shut. There were, sorry for the graphic nature, but it's in the Bible. There were worms growing in his wounds in a day before antibiotics and other modern medical treatments. In fact, you know what Job's only treatment was? Look at the next, look at the next verse. He took a pot shirt, a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself. We find out later on, he's scraping himself until he's bleeding as his only form of relief. It says here, as he was sitting amongst the ashes. In this day and age, you couldn't stay in the city if you were like this. You're banished. Job is out in, in, the, in the city dump of ooze. He's in the trash heap. What's more, as we understand the theology of the friends and the community, they're looking at Job's affliction and they're concluding this man is under the curse of God and we don't want anything to do with him. So they kick him out of the city. There he is alone, bleeding, dying in the trash heap. Verse 9, and then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Mrs. Job has been there all along. She's been there as they've buried their ten children. She's been there grieving the loss of their property and their animals and their servants. She's been there with Job this whole time. 
And now her husband is sick, he's dying, she's convinced he's on, her way, he's on his way out. What are the options for a widow who has no children in this culture? You just go down to the food stamp line, right? You get, a, you get a welfare. No. You know what? Her choices were probably prostitution or begging on the street. And in the midst of processing that, her husband's dying. She's convinced she's going to be alone any day now. She cracks. And she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Just, just curse God and end this. I think that said in the sense, I can't watch you suffer anymore. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay, let's come up for air here for a minute. Okay, that, that was a lot of narrative, so just let's come up here, okay? Why is all of this happening? That, that's, that's the question here. Why is this happening to him? Notice, notice the progression, and that helps us. In chapter 1, God initiates, Satan challenges, God permits, Satan implements, and the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans execute. It's fascinating, isn't it? You can honestly look at this narrative and say, there were three causes to Job's affliction, weren't there? There was the sort of human level, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, the weather, all that, right? Then there's this cosmic level that nobody in the book ever knows about. We, the readers, get to know about God and Satan and and what that's going on. Nobody else in the book ever knows that. There's this cosmic level, the angels and Satan and God, and and we know that part of Job's affliction is related to that. And then there's finally this, this divine level where God, of course, is ruling and reigning, sovereign over all these things. But here's the thing I want you to see. This is what we, the readers, get to see that the characters in the book never understand. The tragedies in Job's life are mostly about God and Satan, aren't they? Do you see that? That's why this is happening. And uh, so we can think thirdly, as as we try to navigate through the, the purposes of this book, we ought to contemplate the purpose of your suffering that may extend beyond you. Contemplate the purpose of your suffering that may extend beyond you. We, we don't get a glimpse like this in most places in Scripture. We don't get to see this, this cosmic, angelic realm very often. Now, we don't want to assume that this sort of thing is behind all or even most of the suffering in the world. I don't think we should conclude that. But what this narrative tells us is that at least sometimes this sort of thing is behind suffering in the world. This shows us a really helpful principle about suffering. And I think this is one of the things we're supposed to gain as we learn this book. Okay, you ready? Here it is. Sometimes suffering is not mostly about you. Sometimes suffering is not mostly about you. We see that what's going on here is God has a plan to thwart the blasphemous charges of the adversary. He's just using Job to do it. And so the human characters are going, what's going on? And yet we see that these tragic events are not mostly about Job. It's about God's cosmic plan to thwart and humiliate his adversary. You know, suffering and affliction is very isolating, isn't it? 
Is that how your suffering feels? It's dark. It's lonely. It's difficult. It's blurry because we tend to turn inside to try to work through this. Never forget that how you respond to suffering always affects others beyond you. It always affects more than just you. In this case, Job's response is convincing evidence against Satan in the courtroom of God himself to thwart Satan's lies and exonerate God from this blasphemous charge. It's to demonstrate his infinite worth and value. Now, how about you? Have you ever considered that your suffering and affliction might actually be an invitation to participate in a plan far beyond anything you or I could imagine. That's what we see here. Job's suffering is extending way beyond him. This is mostly about God and Satan. Okay, now... Now again, let, let's think about where we're at here in the, in the book, okay? Where did all this start? This starts with God's question to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Satan responds with this accusatory question, does Job fear you for nothing? And as you're reading through the book of Job, here's something that will help you. There are, there are bookends on each side of Job. There, there's a, a front bookend, right? And there's a back bookend. There's a starting line and there's a finish line, if you will. And what, what makes this book, the, the, what makes the bookends of the book are two questions. The question at the beginning of the book that frames the front end is Satan's question to God. Does, jo, does Job fear you for nothing? If you look at chapter 40, which you can do this afternoon if you want to, we're not going to get that far. The, the bookend at the end of the book is the question that God asks Job. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And I, and I say that because this book is a book of questions. By my math, the way the NASB translation of the scriptures handles the punctuation, there are 261 questions in this book. Now, why is that? Why would a book that is all about suffering have so many questions? And the answer is because that's what our, the experience of suffering is like. Isn't that what you do? That's what I do. When, when suffering comes in, I start asking questions. I start asking questions. In fact, this is, how, this is one of the ways God redeems suffering. Suffering will cause you to ask questions that you ordinarily will not ask. You know, when life is good, what do you say? Oh, where are we going for lunch today? Let's go to Chick-fil-A. All right. See, that's, those are the sorts of questions we ask when life is good. When suffering comes, we start answering more important questions, more significant questions. We get to chapter 3, which we won't get to, but Job asks some great questions. One of the questions he asks is, why didn't I die at birth? You say, why is he saying that? He's saying, my life is so painful, why did God even let me be alive in the first place? That's a really good question, isn't it? Do you know how many people are suffering today are asking that very question? It's a good question. And the, the book of Job is designed to help us to see that God uses suffering to cause us to ask questions that we ordinarily would not ask because those questions have eternal significance. So it's a book of questions. 
That's what suffering does. Now, not only does suffering cause us to ask questions, if, if you're listening, call me crazy, if you're listening, your suffering actually asks you questions. You say, how's that work? Every occasion of suffering is actually an essential inquiry into the most important part of you and me, and that's our spiritual inner man, our heart. Suffering asks us questions. You say, how does that work? Notice with me this very interesting thing that just happened in our narrative. Satan's challenge to God gets translated into unique suffering designed to ask Job that very question. Okay, you missed it. I can see on your face. You didn't get that. Okay, let me explain this to you. Okay, what was Satan's accusatory question to God? Does Job fear you for nothing, right? Does Job worship you for no reason? It raises the question, why do you worship? Why does Job worship? And then if we apply it to us, why do we worship? Do you see that? Satan's accusatory challenge, why do you worship, gets translated into suffering that causes Job to ask that question. Do you see that? Suffering is causing him to say, why do we worship? And those questions that suffering asks us are very important. In fact, I want you to, to see with me, there are two questions here that suffering asks, okay? So let's go, go on to that one, okay? Listen, in suffering, listen for questions that suffering asks. Now, there are two questions that Job's suffering asks him here, and we know that because he only speaks two times in these two chapters, okay? The first question that Job's suffering asks him is this. Why do you worship? Why do you worship? Look, look, look back at chapter 1, verse 20. Right? He's just lost everything, lost his kids, lost his livelihood, lost his animals, lost his servants. Verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshiped. Isn't that amazing? Now, this raises the whole topic and it's really the theme of the book of Job, why do we worship? That's one of the main themes. Why do we worship? And we need, we need to really think about this thing called worship because I think in our generation, we have lost what it means to worship, okay? Worship is one of those wonderful things we can do with music, with guitars, with instruments, and yes, that, that, that's a form of worship, but that's not worship at its core. Worship in the Bible is actually much more about our hearts, isn't it? We don't have time to do this, but if we were to just survey the Bible on worship, here's what we would find. Worship is really about our allegiance. It's about what we love. It's about uh, uh, what we value, what we praise, what we talk about, where we look to for satisfaction and joy and happiness. What, what What we worship motivates and determines actions. Worship is the operating system of humanity. We were made to worship and we always are doing worship. And so whatever we are, whatever we are choosing to worship literally sets the course of life. At the center of what what we love, our allegiance, our praise, our submission, our satisfaction, our happiness, all those things, you say, well, what's going to determine what we worship? The answer is what we value the most. 
Because our allegiance, our love, our service, our joy, our happiness always centers on what we value in that moment most of all. And that's why it's so significant. Worship is, worship is what happens when we value something so highly that it captures our affections, it motivates our actions, it wins our love, it determines our allegiance, it drives our praise, it submits our will, and it brings our joy. And of course, we understand that we were made to do what? We were made to worship the God who made us. We were made to worship our creator because he is of the highest value. But when sin came into the world, what happens? We, we rip the crown of value off of our creator and we put that crown on other things that we think are of greater value. This is the the horrible progression of what Paul describes, for example, in Romans chapter 1, where fallen humanity replaced the truth of God with a lie, and they worship and serve what? The creature instead of the creator. And that is the plight of fallen humanity. That's why we often say that every problem in life is really a worship disorder. It's false worship in some form or fashion. And of course, we, we, what it means to be a Christian is when we turn away from that false worship in repentance back to God in, in help, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, putting that crown, as it were, back on his set and saying, you are of greatest value. In fact, I understand uh, Pastor Shane just finished a, a series on Thessalonians. And if you remember right, that's how Paul describes the conversion of the Thessalonians, right? They, they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, right? That's what we're talking about here. That's, that's conversion. Coming back to, to value God as the great God that he is. We fall down in loving submission at his feet saying, this is what is most valuable. Jesus talked about this, right? He said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man stumbles upon it. What does he do? He goes and he sells everything he has and he buys the field because he's found what is most valuable. That's conversion. That's salvation that he's talking about here. Or Paul talks about this, uh, his own testimony in Philippians chapter three where he says, I count everything in my life as rubbish that I might gain Christ, uh, this savior of great value. So the gospel is really about valuing Christ more than everything else. And that is why worship is one of the themes of the book of Job. Because worship is the operating system of humanity and it is at the core of what it means to walk with God. And the question that suffering is asking Job is this, why do you worship? Do you worship God because you ultimately value him or his gifts? Now, now you, now you understand that Satan's charge is not primarily an attack on Job's integrity, but a slander against God's character. Do you see that? What Satan is saying is, God is not worthy to be worshipped because he alone is worthy. We only worship God because he makes our life nice. And, and, and if, you're, if you're on to the narrative here, you know what this is? This is the ancient version of the prosperity gospel. This is the ancient 
Middle Eastern version of what is broadcast, even on a Sunday morning like this, all over the world, that if you just worship God, he'll make your life great. Can you see with me that that is a false gospel? That is not just a blasphemous gospel. It is blasphemous to God because it says God is not worthy of our worship alone simply because of who he is. So this is a pretty serious question, isn't it? Why do you worship? Why do you worship? But when you worship God, when we worship God, when all the gifts he gives us are taken away, you know what that does? It demonstrates that God is of supreme value and worth and that both brings him glory and it humiliates, humiliates and thwarts Satan's slanderous lies. Listen, when you whine instead of worship, Satan wins. And although because of the finished work of Jesus, Satan's neck has already been bolted down into the divine guillotine of the great judge and executioner of heaven, our worship failure in suffering gives Satan one more blasphemous speech that can have a negative, eternal effect to a watching world, listen, who is already convinced that Christianity is just a game of make-believe. And that's why this is important. Why do you worship? If you, if you listen, your suffering is asking you that question. Now, we can flip this principle around, can't we? suffering will also expose what you really value. And can I be honest with you? That's very convicting, isn't it? That's how God is redeeming suffering. He's using suffering to expose what we really value. And the reality is, as fallen people in our progressive sanctification, right? We're growing into the image of Christ, but it's definitely a work in progress, at least for me. There are times that suffering exposes my heart and shows me that I'm not valuing God most of all. I'm valuing my comfort. I'm valuing healthy children. I'm valuing a good reputation. I'm valuing a pain-free life. I'm, I'm, I'm valuing my schedule going exactly the way I want it to go. And it never seems to go that way, does it? You know what that is? That's God exposing our hearts saying, why do you worship me? Listen, Satan knows exactly what buttons to push on the cash register of your heart to make it open up to see what's really inside. Suffering will open you up like nothing else in this life will. And if like me, so often when that happens, what you see inside is wicked and discouraging and troubling, there is good news. Because we have a great Savior, don't we? We have a great Savior who is working in us, renewing our hearts, renewing our affections, growing us more into the image of Christ. And Romans 8 assures us that he will not stop until he has complete that work. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he will complete the work that he started. So if that's what you see when suffering opens you up, turn to Christ. And he will do and continue to do a work of renovation. 
in our hearts so that we value him most of all. And as Job and his wife stares down at ten freshly dug graves, in unspeakable sorrow and grief, we expect Satan to hear what he's been wanting to hear the whole time, right? Cursing God. And what does he hear? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be his glorious name. And he is thwarted. His blasphemous charge is crushed. He is humiliated in that moment as Job values God more than anything else. Are you listening to your suffering? Your suffering is asking you questions. Very important questions. Why do you really worship? There's a second question that Job's suffering asks him. And we see this in the, the second round as Satan again comes and removes Job's health, gives him this, this skin disease. Here's the second question that suffering asks. Will you equally receive both good and hard things from God? Will you equally receive both good and hard things from God? Again, Mrs. Job, she can't take it anymore. She's thinking about her future without her husband and she doesn't like it and she cracks and she says, just, just curse God and die. Just, just end this thing. I can't bear to watch you suffer anymore. And notice... Notice that Job rebukes his wife, but he does it in a really nice way, doesn't he? He doesn't say, sweetheart, you're sounding like a fool. He says, you're speaking as one of the foolish women speak. And then he says this, shall we indeed accept good things from God and not accept adversity? It's actually a a Hebrew idiom there. He's saying, shouldn't we accept everything that our heavenly father gives us as the good and kind father that he is? If you think about it, it's really the same question asked a slightly different way. Will you submit to the wisdom and goodness of God in your affliction? Um, I needed help on this, so so I asked some of my favorite theologians, uh, my kids, the other night, I asked them this question. I said, I've noticed something, guys, and I've got uh, almost 16, almost 13, and almost 10, in case you're curious. I asked them, I said, I've noticed this. Why is it that you react different when I give you candy versus when I give you chores? And they said, because um, we like candy more than we like chores. And originally I thought, that's not a great, that's a wonderful answer, isn't it? You like candy, I like candy, we like God's candy that he gives us more than we like his chores, more than we like his correction, more than we like his discipline, more than we like the work of the divine surgeon to expose things in our hearts that he wants to change. More than the work of sanctification, which is so often a byproduct of suffering. We like God's candy more than his chores. That's the bottom line. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. And yet, we must trust the good hand of our Heavenly Father, whether whether what he brings feels more like chores than candy. His intentions are always good for me. Can you do that? Some of you are going through suffering right now. 
And that that's the challenge. Will I trust my heavenly father that what he's doing in my life is painful and I don't like it, but it comes from the good hand of my kind heavenly father? Can I trust him? Do I really believe that he knows what's best for me? You know, suffering is noisy. Anxiety is loud. Fear is turbulent. The whole experience of suffering is blurry. It's disorienting. It's painful. It's so hard. You know what this is like. It is so hard to even have a second to compose your heart and quiet it down. But let me tell you this. You need to intentionally turn down the volume of the noise surrounding your suffering so that you can hear the still, small voice of the questions your suffering is asking you. Because it's asking really good questions. And those questions are often of eternal significance. Are you listening? What questions is your suffering asking you right now? Fifthly, we see here that God calls us through the example of Job to respond to our suffering in humble faith. Respond to our suffering in humble faith. This is incredible. This is one of those passages in scripture where you look at this and you see a faith. You see a man valuing his God and trusting his God in unspeakable pain. And I think there are some things we can learn here through Job's response. So let's just catalog a few of these. The first thing I think we see here is the example that we should submit to God as the sovereign agent over every event in your life. Submit to God as the sovereign agent over every event in your life. Look back at verse 21. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you know, Job does not say, I earned and the Sabaeans took away. In fact, if you read this book, no character of the book, Job never says it, his wife never says it, Bildad, Zophar, and, and Eliphaz don't say it, Elihu doesn't say it, no character in this book ever says, the devil did this. No character in the book ever says, the Sabaeans did it, the Chaldeans did it. The universal interpretation, and it's right, is this all comes from the hand of a kind and good God, the Lord gave and the Lord take away. That's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge to see that God is the sovereign agent over every event in my life, even the pain and the suffering. That's a challenge. But I think that's the challenge we see here in that response. Here's another challenge. To interpret all that God gives you as an undeserved gift of his grace. Interpret all that God gives you as an undeserved gift of his grace. Now, look again at Job's response. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And I, honestly, when I read that, I go, that's crazy. How do you say that when your ten kids just died? Does that challenge you like it challenged me? How can he say that? And I thought about that. I thought, I don't think he's being dramatic. I don't think he's being sarcastic. I think he's being sincere. And there is only one explanation that makes Job's statement here make sense, and it's this. He is viewing his life through the lens of grace. Do you get that? 
What does he say? Naked I came from my mother's womb. He came into the world with nothing, didn't he? And when we leave, how much do we take with us? We don't take anything there, right? So where did all this stuff, I mean, just look. You got family with you. You got great clothes. You got a great church. You got blessing upon blessing upon. Where does that come from? Grace. It's all grace. And if we view life through the lens of grace, if God gives us something, we say, thank you, Lord. I don't deserve this, but thank you. If he takes it away, we say, thank you, Lord, because we didn't deserve it in the first place. Do you see that? It's a life marked by looking through a lens of grace. In, in, this, in this way of thinking, there are no earned commodities or deserved blessings. Seen through the eyes of grace, there are really no ultimate gains or losses. Listen, because in life, we already possess far more than we deserve. You see that? We need to learn to see Everything that God does through the the lens of grace. Thirdly, we need to acknowledge God's right to give and take away according to his good plan. Notice here, Job is not fighting God for the crown of lordship, is he? He's not arguing with God. He's not um, fighting God uh, in terms of sovereignty, in terms of control. He's submitting to God's rule in his life. In fact, the word worship that's used here, that's what the word means. It means to submit. Worship is when we submit our heart to the disposal of our Heavenly Father in every condition of life that He brings. We submit to Him. Fourthly, we worship and praise God in every circumstance because He is worthy. You see that? Why is he worshiping? Is he worshiping because God made his life good? Is he buying into that, that ancient prosperity gospel that this is your, you know, your best life is going to be right here, Right? No, why is he worshiping? He's worshiping because he values God above everything else. And listen to me, there is nothing that your suffering will ever take away that somehow removes your hold on God. Suffering can never take your God away. It can never take your Savior away. That Romans 8 chain that we love, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And if he is of the greatest value, We always have him, and having him is better than it all. We worship because he is worthy, not because of the things he gives us. We worship him because of him, the giver, not because of his gifts. Number five, we want to recognize God's absolute sovereignty without blaming him from evil. Did you notice this? This is really radical thinking, so stay with with me here for a minute. Job says... God did this, but not in a way that blames God or accuses him of the moral evil involved in it. Do you see that? That's the mystery of divine providence. That's this thing we call sovereignty, that God is overall, but not in a way that makes him morally responsible for wicked and evil things in the world. And Job demonstrates that. He's saying, yes, God did this, but he's not blaming God or accusing God. He's trusting him. He's submitting to him. He's worshiping him in the midst of it. And the final thing we see here is accept whatever God's bring, whatever God brings about in your life without sinning. We see this in his response to his wife in chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we indeed set, accept good from God and not accept adversity? 
Job's righteous responses to suffering. This is interesting. Notice that Job's righteous responses to suffering are experienced with great sorrow and grief in his heart. In fact, listen, righteous responses in suffering in the normal life of a believer are usually accompanied by unpleasant but godly emotions, such as grief. Listen very closely. Godliness in suffering is not indifference. It's not painlessness. It's not a Christian stoicism. No, no, no. Godliness in suffering is a quiet, submissive, worshiping heart in the midst of sorrow, difficulty, and pain. It is trusting your heavenly Father in the dark. And we see that here. Many of you have heard the story of Horatio Spafford, a successful 19th century lawyer who lost his only son at the age of four, and then he was totally ruined financially by the great Chicago fire of 1871. Two years later, he planned to travel to Europe uh, for business, and, uh, but his uh, family, uh, he was delayed, so he sent his family across on the ship, and he planned to meet them later on. And as many of you know, the ship that his family was on collided with another vessel and sank, killing all four of his daughters. As he traveled alone on another ship to meet his grieving wife, he passed by the spot where the collision had occurred, where his precious daughters had drowned, and he wrote these words to his most famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth what my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Here's the challenge. How can anyone possibly say that following the death of a a child, let alone four children or ten children? And here's the answer. To value God more than anything else. Do you want to know what what you value most of all? Listen to the questions that your suffering is asking you. And may that lead us to value more and more our God and Him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story and the testimony of this man, Job. I pray, Lord, that we would learn from his faith, from his responses, that we would value you most of all. We would value our Savior. We would value our God more than any of his gifts, as thankful as we are. And Father, in that journey, I pray that we would learn to listen to our suffering as it points to why we really worship. And we pray humbly that you would indeed complete the work that you started in us so that your name, your great name, your great reputation will be seen and embraced and prized and glorified over and and valued most of all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.